Hello, everyone. This is Money Mentality, and I'm your host, Thomas Stapp. Uh, today, I'll be giving you a primer on behavioral finance. Uh, so look forward to that a little bit later. But for now, let's get into what the markets have been doing recently. Uh, so as of last week, the S&P 500 closed out uh, May 15th at 2863. Uh, the prior week, it closed at 29.29, so that was a loss of 2.26%. Uh, that was mainly just fueled by uh, the lack of good news last week. There really wasn't any. We've been in these tough times with the coronavirus, and the market's been moving along with kind of a flux of good news and bad news. But fortunately, today there was actually some good news. Uh, Moderna announced promising results for their phase one trial, their vaccine. And so the market went up quite a bit today. Uh, today it closed at 29.53 for the S&P 500. And the global Dow has been pretty similar. Uh, last week it closed at 25.49, the prior week at 26.37. So it had that negative return over the last week of 3.33%, but then today it Recaught up to that prior week level and closed at 26.40 off of that good news. Uh, and then looking at how the coronavirus has developed, uh, in the U.S., the cases are starting to slow down a little bit, uh, not as much as we had hoped. Uh, but looking at the actual numbers, so globally, there are now more than 4.7 million confirmed cases. Uh, there are 317,000 global deaths. Uh, U.S. cases, there are more than 1.5 million confirmed and at least 90,000 confirmed deaths so far from the coronavirus. So uh, we'll, we'll see how that develops. Hopefully the Moderna vaccine uh, gets approved. They're expecting that the phase three trials will begin in July. So that's another uh, two months from now. Uh, there's still a lot of unknowns there. There could be a lot of things that change. Uh, phase one trials are by no means a uh, guarantee that the cure to the vaccine has been found. Uh, so we'll just have to be patient and see how it all develops. Um, and so now getting into our topic. Uh, so I think just with how crazy the markets have been, uh, there's been a lot of <laughs> irrational behavior in investors. And so behavioral finance uh, was a field that kind of came about in the early 2000s, uh, late 90s. Uh, it's about how investors, their emotions cause a lot of these market rallies and then market crashes. Because there's kind of the original theory for how markets uh, function is the efficient markets theory. And then essentially what that says is that investors are rational and then markets reflect rational behavior. Then the thing is, if that was the case, then the markets would be essentially a flat line going upward with maybe a few gyrations in there, but they wouldn't be fluctuating quite as much as what we see. And so the behavioral finance is essentially the antithesis to this efficient markets theory. And so the idea behind behavioral finance is that humans are irrational so then markets will be irrational. And so let's actually look at two studies that have kind of proven this. And so there was a, this study 
by Dalbar uh, that showed that over 20 years uh, through the end of 2015, so from 1995, then of 1995 to the end of 2015, the S&P 500 made an average annual rate of return of 8.2%. And now versus the average investor made 2.1% over this time period. And so that I feel like that 2.1% isn't entirely attributed to uh, this investor irrationality. I feel like it's partially attributed to uh, the investor is being invested in bonds or other uh, less uh, returning investments. Uh, but that's still, even if an investor was invested in less risky assets, they should still have a higher rate of return than 2.1% over a 20-year period. And then so what that difference is, is essentially uh, behavioral finance. And so uh, looking at another study, uh, in 2005, Stanford did a study where they had participants do a simulated investment game. And then so this was a mix of participants where about 19 of them had uh, brain damage, actually. And they had brain damage in the parts of their brain that affected their emotional response, but it didn't impact their IQ. And then so from this study, they found that these investors that had suppressed emotional response outperformed the investors in the study that had uh, normal brains. And so that kind of gave some proof that emotions can have a negative impact on investing. And so how does that work? What are these emotions and these factors and behavior that hurt your investment gains? Well, the first one is fear. And so I think fear comes in two forms. So there's the obvious fear of loss, and then there's the FOMO, which is that fear of missing out. And so looking at the fear of loss, now this can be uh, pretty easily seen. Uh, as soon as the market starts going down, you always have these investors where their main goal is asset preservation. And so if the market starts going down, they might sell out immediately. And then they potentially won't enter the market for another few years if the market ended up going down. Like in 2008, there were a lot of investors that got out of the market near the bottom. And it took them several years, like five, six years before they got back into the market. But the thing is, the market recovered at, in 2009. And then it continued going up from there. So they lost out on all those investment gains. And so that's where the fear of loss is not a good thing for investing. If you look at how we're programmed as a species, this fear of loss is a good thing. Because if you go back to kind of like evolutionary theory of how our brains are wired, uh, we want to preserve our states. We don't want to... Uh, lose food or lose our shelter and so we'll do things that prevent those things from happening and that's kind of a natural fear of loss where it's beneficial but in investing when it happens where you sell out in a down market it can actually be harmful and then there's that fear of missing out the FOMO which this can be seen in 
kind of these more riskier market periods, such as the dot-com bubble or even the end of 2019, basically any period following really good investment gains, there's kind of this herd mentality where the market's going to keep going up. There is nothing stopping it, even though all the underlying indicators are saying that everything's overpriced and that this is just a herd behavior. Uh, there are always those people that get dragged into that and they, they're going, oh, the market's already gone 50%. Uh, what if it goes up another another 50%? I don't want to miss out on that. Uh, but the thing is that <laughs> that does not end very well in a lot of these situations. If you look at the dot-com bubble, there are a lot of people that got into that rally and a lot of those companies uh, just went completely bankrupt and a lot of people lost it all. And then uh, if we look at the most recent event that we're going through right now, if you look at 2019, the S&P 500 returned about 31%, a little bit more than 31% last year. But the thing is there weren't really any underlying indicators like increased earnings or increased uh, economic expansion that indicated that the S&P 500 should continue to go up at this rate. It was more so just investor herd behavior. And so there were a lot of people that continued to get into the market and continued to push it up. And then ultimately when that results in an economic shock like the coronavirus, then there's a huge tumble and then that resulted in the fastest market drop we've seen in all of uh, modern financial market history. And then so the another uh, behavior that can hurt uh, investing is overconfidence. And so overconfidence can be seen in a lot of areas regarding investing. And so the first most obvious area, I think, is believing that you have the ability to time the market. And so like, obviously, if you look at a market chart, you can see that it goes up and then it goes down and then it goes up and then it goes down. Like, it would be pretty obvious that if you bought at the top, or if, I mean, if you sold at the top, bought at the bottom, and then sold at the top again and then bought at the bottom, like, your returns would be insane. Like, they would be historical levels of returns. But the thing is, at any given point in time, there's no way to know where the market's going to go in the short term. Like there might be people that will make an educated guess. And then if they're right afterwards, they'll claim to be an expert. But those people are usually proven wrong in the long run. And so the thing is, these people that try to time the market, they might be right a few times, but in the long run, historically, they underperform the S&P 500 index or even uh, less risky investments like bonds. Uh, like if we go back to that study, if you were getting that 2.1% rate of return, you would have been underperforming bonds even over that period, a less risky investment. And then so the thing is, uh, there's also another type of overconfidence. And then that would be if you have a model with investing. And so things every investor should have some sort of model that they follow if it's based on uh, like economic growth, uh, company growth, uh, earnings, evaluations. Uh, there are a lot of factors that go into building a model. The thing is every investor should have one. Uh, but the thing is you have to be willing to change that model as the underlying assumptions in that model change. 
and then ideally the model should be based on long-term assumptions because a lot of these short-term assumptions that come down to market timing, uh, they're not really predictable. And so a lot of the time, if you're someone that has a portfolio that say you're 25 and it's your retirement portfolio that you're going to have for the next 40 years, if you say invest it all in gold because gold has a good outlook over the next five years, uh, but then things change in the next two years that show that gold doesn't have a good outlook, you need to be willing to scrap that model and adjust it. And so this is where investors have that overconfidence bias is they'll stick to that model because they still stick to their original assumptions, even though the evidence behind them will have changed. And then even going out to a longer term, like over the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, um, the horizon might have been lowered quite a bit. Uh, they would benefit themselves to make a change there based on long term uh, changes in their model. And then so what are the takeaways for these behavioral finance things that I've just uh, discussed? So the thing is, you have to be as objective as possible. So you have to find a way to invest without incorporating emotions, which this is very difficult. Like most people can't do this. Uh, so how do you do this? Uh, so the first way is to have a model, like I just discussed. Uh, an investor should have a model. Uh, that's kind of the first step. And then you should be willing to change this model as long-term assumptions change. And then also, uh, investors need to be in the right strategic allocation. Uh, so what's a strategic allocation? Uh, your strategic allocation is your risk level of your investments based on your risk capacity. And so your risk capacity would be your time horizon of your investments, and then also your individual uh, attitude for risk. So if you're the type of person that would be more likely to take risky bets in, at Vegas, then you might have a high risk tolerance for your attitude. And then so it has to be a combination of both of those and it has to be a strategic allocation that you can actually stick to. Because a lot of people might say that they're uh, really risky investors, but then once the market goes down uh, 30% during a big uh, bear market correction, uh, these investors will jump ship and they'll prove that they actually did not have this level of risk. So you have to really vet that. And then so another way that you can be as objective as possible is to hire an investment advisor. So an investment advisor will actually have this, they'll have a model for uh, the investments and they'll be able to develop the strategic allocation for you. And so a lot of investors don't know how to develop a model and they don't know what their proper strategic allocation is. And so that's when the services of an investment advisor come into play. And then also this investment advisor won't be as emotionally attached to the money because it's not their money. So they can take a more objective approach. And so that's everything that I have for today on behavioral finance. It's a big field, constantly growing.
Uh, but so I may touch on it in future podcasts, but I think that's a good one-on-one for understanding behavioral finance. Uh, have a good rest of your week, everyone. The content in this presentation is provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. You should consult a tax professional about any tax consequences and a licensed investment professional prior to making any investment decision. No statement within this presentation should be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell a security or provide any investment advice.